So you can see Balaam and Balak. I just didn't have a good picture for this because I don't even know what this is about. So I couldn't come up with a good picture. Um, so you remember the story, right? Balak, King Balak hired Balaam to curse the children of Israel because he was concerned that they were going to come take over his country, even though they weren't. Um, and you remember that he hired him. And the first thing he did was, uh, and I'll just read this. And, well, that's spelled wrong. Bidmar. How is it spelled on your side? Okay, good. That's correct. I've got it wrong. Um, Bidmar, Numbers 23.3. And it goes like this. Stan, and this is, um, he, King Balak calls Balaam. Balaam comes. You know, a, that's a whole story. He finally comes. And then the first thing Balaam says is, I want you to set up seven, I think, or eight uh, stations, and we're going to offer a bullock and a goat on each one. So uh, that's, that's what's going on here. So Balaam is saying to King Balak, stand by the burnt offering and I will go. Peradventure, Yahuwah will come to meet me, and whatsoever he showeth me, I will tell to thee. And he went to a high place. So that sounds okay so far except you know somebody should ask Balak if he really wants to follow through this because um, the prophet can only speak the words that the Lord gives him and is he ready to hear it and I thought that was interesting because um, you know the whole focus of this thing is going to be well you'll get to the you know why it's it's like we're not totally I mean, we are, but those other people, those other Christians that go to the Baptist church and the Methodist church, you know, those guys, um, they're not totally into following the word, right? They only, only kind of follow the parts they like. And if they don't like it, they don't really want to hear it. It's like the kids who stick their fingers in there and yell and scream because they don't want to hear it. And that's kind of the deal here is King, King Balak is hiring Balaam. And Balaam is saying, look, I'll do this, but I have to say what the Lord's going to tell me to say. Are you ready for that? And of course, most of us are not. Um, we find out later that, which is, goes through scripture. There's a number of times you get this idea of it. But Balaam could not curse something that Yahuwah had blessed. And it's the same with all of us and with the rest of the world. And so we shouldn't be too panicked because if you who has blessed it, ultimately, there is no, no entity anywhere that is going to be able to curse it. Um, but of course, Balaam did find a way to collect the money. <laughs> and that's, the, you know, you'll read through scripture, the way of Balaam. And that way was not that he was cursing the people. It was that he told King Balak, well, look, this is all you're going to do is just throw worldly stuff out in the road. Take your babes, put them out there, you know, slinky them up a little bit. And they'll be yours because what will happen is the guys will fall for it because guys always fall for it. And then God himself will curse the people and it'll get us right out of the loop. And it worked then and it has worked for 3,500 years since. It's always the way the enemy works is you cast things in front of the believers and they just go, oh, well, that's cool. And, you know, you think, oh, I wouldn't be seduced by some, you know, large-breasted Armenian woman or something. 
It doesn't have to be that. It can be TV, it can be cars, it can be your job, it can be your friends, whatever it is that's part of the world and is not part of the word can seduce you and take you away from the things of the world. And uh, most believers then, and most believers now would rather stick their fingers in their ears and yell and scream than actually have to hear the truth because once they hear the truth, then they have to believe it. And if, you know, that puts them in a really bad spot. And that's, I, I think, one of the reasons why most people don't want to hear, well, that, and I'm probably terribly boring, but they don't want to hear this stuff because once you hear it, you can't unhear it. And it's the word of the Lord and it's compelling and you kind of have to do it. So um, as we're heading into Passover, I just wanted to sort of, you know, talk about some of this stuff. And I've been talking about it in some of the tidbits. No tidbit tomorrow because it's the Sabbath. Um, and I'll pick it up again on Sunday. Um, you know, we know what the Passover is. Passover and unleavened bread and Feast of First Fruits pictures the crucifixion and the resurrection of the Messiah. So it's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a big deal. And the world, of course, doesn't want you to know about that big deal. So they have corrupted it with, uh, you know, Cadbury bunnies and chocolate ears and uh, all that stuff. And then they just, and they still, I know. And they, yeah, it's, it's a, it's, it's a bit of a mystery, but I mean, it's not, it's the same thing that Balaam discovered. All you have to do is cast something out there and the people will fall for it. So, you know, it's a fertility right. So that's always fine. You know, you got that going for you. And then there's the chocolate eggs and the bunnies and the Easter egg hunts, and, you know, all that stuff, which is fun. Or you can come to the Passover and eat unleavened bread and lamb and, you know, listen to me or somebody even perhaps more boring than me. The, the first couple of Passovers I went to back in Santa Barbara, um, were dynamite except they were actual you know jewish guys and jewish guys like to sing yeah and you know yahuwah uh, gave jews a lot of uh a lot of good stuff they got a lot of blessings they can make money they're smart you know there's a lot of things but man singing is not one of them <laughs> and especially the guys there's a couple female hebrew singers that are that i love listening to it's beautiful voice beautiful girls but man you get a bunch of 70 year old jewish guys singing the psalms i mean it's tragic and that's kind of what the passover is right it's not fun like easter so you take easter you do it on the wrong day for the wrong reasons and you slather the name of the lord on it somewhere and call it good well that's you're, you're in Balaam territory here. This is exactly how that works. And the, the, the thing to think about, I guess that, that this is actually the title of the message, is uh, not holy, but common. You know, and we have to make that decision in our lives. Do you want to be holy and do all of those things um, that that entails? Or are you satisfied just being common? You know, I'm not claiming that you're profane although there may be some who claim to be Christians that, that are profane. But I think most Christians would fall into the category, and most Jews would fall into the category of common. They're just, 
They're just common stuff. There's nothing holy. They're not particularly profane. They're just, you know, and they don't, they like it there. We all like it there. We don't want to, we don't want to be challenged and we don't want to uh, have to stick out from the crowd. And, you know, we certainly don't want to get challenged down at 40 days, you know, with some wacko. Uh, well, most people don't. Dan would do it. I would do it. But, um, you know, we're happy being common and we're happy celebrating Easter, even though I can't imagine that there are many Christians that don't know that that's not real. And certainly they know Christmas isn't real, you know, and then you, you say, oh, but it's Jesus' birthday. They know it's not Jesus' birthday. <laughs> they know Easter's got nothing to do with the resurrection. I mean, it, it's, it's insane. But most Christians are common. Most Jews are common. They're just happy with it. You know, you slap a bumper sticker on it, it's good to go. So you think about, and I'm sure this has never happened to any of you, but if you're driving along and a cop pulls you over and you say, what did I do, officer? Which, by the way, you should never ask. And he'll tell you. And you'll say, well, I didn't know that was illegal. Well, eh, you know, never say that, right? there. There's a tip. Never say that. But if you do say that, you know what the answer will be, right? Ignorance of the law is no excuse. Well, the word law is Torah. It seems to be a fitting deal. Ignorance of the Torah is no excuse. So, oh, but my heart, it's for, it's for God, it's for Jesus. You know, we sing, we sing Christmas carols and we talk about, uh, you know, all this stuff, the resurrection and Good Friday, you know, that's when he was crucified, don't you know? And we talk about all that stuff. Well, ignorance of the Torah is no excuse. That doesn't count. You're still missing the point. But God knows my heart. That's what I'm afraid of, actually. <laughs> he knows your heart, and your heart is common. Your heart is not seeking after the holiness of, of, of him. Willful ignorance, yeah. Like yeah. Ken Ham says, stupid on purpose. You know, it's just, but that's what it is. It's ignorance of the Torah is no excuse. You know, you can't say, oh, my heart's for God, and then go out and do what you want to do. Well, no, it's Easter, don't you know? It's about the resurrection and crucifixion. No, no, actually it's not. It's about fertility rights and Easter bunnies and, and chocolate eggs. And you can say whatever you want, but that does not make the common holy. So, um, that is, yeah, that's we just talked about Laodicea. You know, that's what it is. And, and read, read the last part of Revelation chapter 3 when it talks about Laodicea and see if that doesn't sound like the world we live in, because it absolutely is. We're, we're not, we, we don't want for anything. We're rich. And it goes through a list of things, you know, and, it, and then he says, but actually, you're not. You're poor, stupid, naked or something. He doesn't say stupid, but that was the gist of it. Wretched. wretched thank you. You're poor, wretched, and naked from... The disembodied voice from back somewhere. Yeah. Okay. Um, so they'll say, well, actually, did I? Okay, let's do Matthew 7. I might have skipped that. 23. Matthew 7, 23. And then I will profess to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work in equity. Now, you know the, 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 the context of that, right? And they said, uh, but I went to church on most Sundays. Well, a lot of Sundays. And I tithe, 
some. And I worked in nurseries and I cleaned the floors and I loved the people. Well, well, the ones that weren't jerks. Uh, you know, I'm better than most, right? What do you mean you never knew me? He never knew you. You were common. You were not holy. He never knew you. And that's, we've talked about this before. That word uh, inequity is the word in Greek, anomios, and it means without law, which means without Torah. You are without, I never knew you because you are without the Torah. You are perfectly fine with Easter and Christmas and hitting church on the wrong day, maybe two or three times a month and, you know, flipping a fiber into the bin. And, but there was nothing there. You're, it, you're common, you're ordinary. You're just like all of the common things. So, and that's, you know, I was kidding sort of about Nedra and, and uh, uh, L1 over there already having, I was going to leave because they already knew the whole sermon. Um, the song was, what was it again? Take me into the Holy of Holies, that one. Um, that's the difference. Are you, are, you, are you perfectly content being out in the, in the courtyard? Or do you want to go into the Holy of Holies? And if you go into the Holy of Holies, I mean, that's a big deal because there's things you have to do and you have to do them right. And you have to have a heart to do it and you have to want to do it. And once you know it, you can't ever unknow it. And that was what I, I think his name was Rick. That's what I was telling him. I said, you know, I'd love to have you come, but just know once you know this stuff, you can't unknow it. There's no, there's no backing up. You know, you can't all of a sudden go, no, no, I never heard it. I never heard it. You know it, then you have to do it. So most people uh, remember the story of Balaam and Balak, and they can get, you know, most of it right. But very few people seem to know what God actually said to him. Does anybody here know? No, nobody knows. It's, you know, we all know the general story, which is fine. But what he said was in, in Bidmar uh, 29.9, Numbers 29.9, For from the top of the rocks I see him, from the hills I behold him. Lo, the people shall dwell alone, and they shall not be reckoned among the nations. Well, that's kind of the story. That's always what Yahweh asks of his people, that they not assimilate that they not be part of the nations, that they not get caught up in all the worldly stuff, that they be separate. So it says, you know, that the people shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. Okay, so this is in the book of Leviticus. That's 239? Uh, no, it's 29.9. Oh, 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 it wasn't a question. Okay, it's 23.9. I'm sorry. Thank you for that. <laughs> well, look, I just, you know, I don't do this for a living. No, no, that's good. Make to all the worldwide listeners, that was 23.9 in the book of Leviticus. No, so, you know. Okay, so let's recap how this has gone for the uh, house of Israel. In the garden, Adam and Chava, were given certain instructions, but they didn't obey those instructions. 
and they were cast out, right? They couldn't keep separate. Noah told the people to turn back to Yahweh for 120 years, he told them. Seven people did, and only because they were related to Noah. They were unable to keep separate. The children moved to Egypt, which Yahuwah was using as a womb to grow his people. But they assimilated into the culture, turned to all the worldly stuff, and most of them wouldn't even leave Egypt, and the ones that did wound up making a golden calf. Not so awesome. Less than a year later, those children who'd made the golden calf were in the promised land. And they said to Moshe, let us go spy out the land. Let's go investigate. And they went around and looked and saw all of these beautiful homes and big supermarkets and towering walls and just a beautiful place. And these people that were, you know, 20, 30 feet tall, I don't know. And they said, even though Yahuwah sent those giants to build us a beautiful place, it's too formidable for us. We can't go there. So they went back into the world. So now here they are wandering the desert. And you get the Balaam and Balak thing. And the Lord says to them, you're to be separate. You're to be alone. You're to dwell by yourselves. You're not to interact with the world and become part of all the worldly garbage. And King Balak and Balaam understand this, but the children don't. And Balak sends some babes out there and they're pretty much lost at sea. So when Yeshua was... Um, praying the Lord's Prayer, not the Catholic Lord's Prayer, but the real Lord's Prayer, prayer in John 17. Um, one of the parts of the prayers he was talking about his disciples, and he was asking the Father to make sure that they were in the world, but not of the world, right? They need to be separate. The people need to be alone. They need to focus on the things of the Lord. They need to focus on the truth of the word. They need to do and obey those things. And it's just not possible if you're living in the world because there's too much stuff happening. And even in, in Balaam's day, or maybe even especially in Balaam's day, you know, there was no internet, no TV, no smutty books, no, um, you know, what did they have? How hard could it be? to follow after the things of the Lord. And so all you have to do is sprinkle a couple of loosely dressed babes out there, and all of a sudden the entire nation collapses. I mean, how is that even possible? And then you look in the mirror and you realize that's exactly the life you lead. We are smothered of things in the world. We live for the things of the world. We're concerned about the things of the world. And it's really, really, really hard to be separate from the world, to live, to, as they say, to live alone. The people should, you know, they're designed to live apart from the things of the world. 
His people shall dwell alone and shall not be reckoned among the nations. And that's harder to do than it is to say. But that's the difference between the common and the holy. You know, we can all be common. And I mean, we don't watch like you. We don't watch, you know, horrible things on TV. And we don't read terrible books. And we don't go pray at pagan altars. So we're not profane. But do we follow every word? that the Lord gives us? And do we make every effort there is to be separate from the world and to trust in him to be holy like he is holy? Maybe, you know, some more than more than most. <laughs> I don't know. Are you holy yet? I, 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 don't, I don't know that I am. So last week we looked at offerings and Linda reminded us that offerings are different than sacrifices. Do you want to elaborate on that or are we good? Sacrifice is just a cleaning and food, a meal. Okay. Whereas offerings do not incest what I Okay, interesting. She said sacrifices usually include a meal, offerings do not. Um, but the offerings, some offerings, become a meal for the priests. Right. They are food for the priests. And, you know, people. <laughs> say what's wrong with the dog she limping um people say people who don't go to this bible study say that the most boring book on earth is leviticus possibly deuteronomy numbers numbers is a tough one okay so most of the torah is difficult for most people to read because it seems it seems like it doesn't apply for one and it seems like it's a bunch of rules and restrictions that are unnecessary because there's no temple anymore it just seems like they're not that interesting of books to read now we've gone through the torah portions and, and i thought leviticus was maybe the best book I've ever studied because it was just, it's not how most people read it. All of those things have meanings. And last week we were in, uh, you know, we were talking about some of the offerings and how it's done and you read it and, you know, the animal is cut like this and that's done and you take its innards out and you clean them and, you know, all that stuff just sounds, you know, not us. But I think, you know, we talked about the innards being treated differently and being cleansed with clean water and, and, you know, being offered in a way that maybe some of the other stuff was. That's clearly reference to us. That's what uh, Yahweh does to us, right? Is he cleans us from the inside. He cleans our hearts so that the outside can be clean. But he starts with the heart and the heart has to be clean. That's the most important part in scripture, right? It talks often about our hearts being cleaned, our insides being clean, there being no uh, filthiness in us. Well, that's exactly the picture you see of the offerings we talked about last week. And you, you talked about the blood, you know, you collect the blood and you splatter it around and oh my gosh, that's just gross. And yet it says the blood is life. You know, out of the death of this innocent animal, 
comes this picture of God cleaning you from the inside out, comes this picture of life as the blood is cast around the the tabernacle and 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 all this we you know the way the animals cut up not a bone is broken the hide is divided up among you know all of this stuff we understand what it means if you just stop for a minute and read it it's it's not just this oh yeah do this do that cut it here you know on the dotted line thing and then you're good to go that's not it at all it has a meaning uh you know they all do way way deeper than um, most 21st century Christians, Americans ever want to look. I mean, they, they don't want to know. They just say, well, it's not for us. I don't need to know anything. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, it's, it, there's nothing in there for us. Well, that's crazy. Well, the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. We couldn't do offerings anyway, even if it was for us. Well, that's nuts. It's not about, I mean, it is about, it was the, the Bible, the instructions, the Tanakh, the Torah were written about people to do stuff, real people, real things in a real time. Those things actually happened. There was a tabernacle, there were priests, there were people, Yahuwah was there, Yeshua's coming, all of those things were real. But if the book was all about them, what, what good would any of it do for us? Because it, it, it wasn't written for us, right? But of course it was. Everything in this book was written for people throughout history. And because we didn't live back then, we didn't have to do those things. But that doesn't mean these instructions are not uh, important. It's a shadow of things to come. You know, and to think that these things were written and are no longer valid kind of makes God one-dimensional. It's, and, and, and it's crazy um, how, how we think that, you know, and, and the one I get all the time, right. I stand around talking to people about the old Testament and they always say the same thing. Well, you think it's okay to stone your son if he's disobedient? Because that's what the Bible says, right? That the Torah says that you can stone your son if he's been disobedient. Well, they've, they've heard that it says that they've probably never read that. Because if they read it and they kept reading, it would give you specific instructions. Okay, if your son's been disobedient, this is what you do. You take him to the priest. You guys have a little sit down, a powwow, you discuss it. Um, and then the priest has to okay stoning of your son before he can be stoned. Well, there's no record of that ever happening, ever. It never happened. Well, why is it in the Bible? You know, and they say, well, do you think it's okay for you to stone, stone your son? You know, so my response is always something like, well, that's, that's very clever. I'm, I'm glad we have you to catch that. I don't know what we would have done if you hadn't seen that. Oh my gosh, you know, this is great. Well, of course not. My response is, no, I would never stone my son. But I do think it's important that he understands disobedience brings death. And that's the message, right? That was the message back then. That's the message today. Nobody ever stoned your son. But disobedience does bring death. And I think it's important to know that. And I would, I would take it a step further and ask them about their son. And how's he doing? Oh, well, you know, he's got a little problem with drugs and he's kind of in jail right now. Huh. Well, you suppose the fact you didn't teach him disobedience brings death has anything to do with that? Nah, just saying, you know. So the words of the Tanakh, 
I think are for all time. They're written for, uh, as the Bible says, people in the distance of time. But it was written for those people right there to do those things, and they did those things. And whether or not they understood them in a, in a deeper spiritual way, I'm not certain. And I'm not certain that they had to understand them. They, they were given a task to do, and they did it. Or the ones that did it, did it. And the ones that didn't, uh, well, didn't. And many of them died. But I believe that all of those things are written for a purpose. I mean, why would, why would you write the Bible, all of those books, only to have us cast out two-thirds of them? It makes no sense whatsoever. And who's going to be the guy to say, oh, yeah, God wrote that. But you know what? Let's just crumple it up and throw away. It doesn't mean anything. I mean, who's going to do that? Who's going to poke their finger in the eye of God? Even if they didn't understand it, that's a stupid place to be. So the way I read my Bible is he is God yesterday, today, and tomorrow. All of those things that he wrote are pertinent. And if you read stuff in Leviticus or Deuteronomy or Numbers, and it's just like, oh my gosh, I can't even keep awake here. It's because you're not paying attention. Look and see what it might really be saying. Because it has something for the people in the distance of time, which is us. And we should try to find those things. And when you do, uh, I suggest they become really fun books. And like you say, I remember going through the Torah portions in Leviticus some years ago, I think with most of you guys. And I thought it was a great book. It was, it was way more fun than I ever thought it could be. But most people don't look at it that way. So the theme, remember, is um, not holy, but common. And we want to be holy. We don't want to be common. How do you think you're going to be holy? You kind of have to be obedient. And to be obedient, you have to understand what he says, what he's asking. And it's helpful if you can understand why he's asking you to do those things. It's not just because he's some big meanie and gets his jollies out of uh, forcing you to do stuff you don't want to do. He's not some bloodthirsty, you know, God that takes sacrifices. And I mean, the, the blood is life. He's, he's, he tells you the things you cannot do with the blood. And the, and the only thing you can't do with the blood is use it in a spiritual, sacred, holy way inside the temple to bring life. Uh, he's looking at our insides, our heart. He wants to make sure they're clean. Um, you know, okay. So let's skip down here to Viacra 5, verse 2. Because this, if you start reading... Um, Viagra. It gets boring fast if you don't know what they're talking about. For instance, for chapter 5, verse 2, it says, if a soul touch an unclean thing, whether it be a carcass of an unclean beast or a carcass of an unclean cattle or the carcass of an unclean creeping things, and if it be so hidden from him, he shall also be unclean and guilty. Or if he touches the uncleanliness of a man, whatsoever uncleanliness it be that a man shall defile within, and he shall be hid from him. When he knoweth of it, he shall be guilty. Okay, so you get this? If you touch an unclean thing, you become unclean. So you're common. You're in your common deal. You're in the middle of the road. Life's going okay. You're not, you know, you're not striving to be super holy. You're trying not to be unclean. And you touch something that's unclean. Then you become unclean. 
Okay, well, most of these things in the book have a practical and a spiritual meaning. And the practical is obvious. If, if I mean, today, if I go outside, you know, one of the birds slams against the glass and poor guy's dead outside, I'll go pick him up and throw him in the garbage. Well, technically that makes me unclean because I've just touched a dead body. So what, what am I supposed to do? Well, I, I'm supposed to do what I would do. I would go wash my hands and, you know, I mean, if possible, I'd use a glove or something, but I mean, it's still, you would clean up, right? You don't want to, and if, if you're moving a dead deer off the road or, you know, who knows what, I mean, there are times you, you're just, you're just going to have to touch a dead body. You just are right. Stuff happens. There are other things that happen sometimes, you know, you just, you're unclean. And maybe it's not through your own fault. It's not that you're, you know, watching porn or something or whatever. It's, it's, it's just a fact of life. So when, when something that's common or holy touches something that's unclean, they become unclean. And there's a prescription for how to clean you back up, right? And often it involves washing your hands, which makes total sense. Um, you know, and there's, there's typically a, period of time that you can't associate with people and we understand now that that's important you have to wash your hands you have to maybe clean your clothes change your clothes maybe you should avoid other people because there are certain defilements that we would say um, are contagious right so you want to stay away from other people well that's what what was written 3500 years ago so Obviously, there's a practical dimension to these things, but there's also a spiritual dimension. You know, we don't bat an eye at, at doing exactly what the Bible says, washing up, changing your clothes, keeping away from people if you're sick. I mean, that's just, we think that's duh. Well, where, where do you think we got that? That information came from the Torah. It didn't come from OSHA. It wasn't King Fauci telling us what to do. This was God himself saying, hey, look, if something happens and you find yourself in a situation where you are defiled, I want you to know two things. You're not separated from me forever and we can fix this. And he tells you, well, it's the same way today. We do the same practical things today, but we've lost the spiritual bit of it. You know, and you think about in the 13 and 1400s when the Black Plague swept Europe, who didn't die? The Jews. The Jewish com communities had almost no deaths. Why? Because when they touched a dead body, they washed seven times and they isolated for a week. So the plague never spread. And the Jewish people did not get the Black Plague. And it was so obvious to the rest of the world they were angry and they were taking people who did die from the black plague and they were trebucheting them into the Jewish communities to try to kill the Jews. They were so angry they weren't getting sick. And so the Jews would pick up the dead bodies. They just flung over the walls and they would take them out and burn them outside the camp. And then they would wash seven times and isolate for a week. And guess what? Nobody got sick. Well, that's pretty awesome. So if you obey, life is the result. If you disobey, death is the result. There was no 
bigger, more obvious uh, event than the Black Plague to just prove the things that God said are true. But it still doesn't even begin to talk about the spiritual part of it. Um, so we should avoid people who have died from the plague. Okay, we should avoid dead bodies, dead animals. There's a whole list of things that are profane. And we don't live 3,500 years ago. We, didn't, we don't live when this was written. And it wasn't written for the times we live in. But the idea is the same. So I don't have, um, I, don't, I don't deal with the stuff they dealt with. I deal with different stuff. What do you watch or what do you read? What, what shows do you attend? You know, we just went to the kids. I don't know. I don't even know what it was. It was a Broadway thing, Broadway play. Very cute. Vail Performing Arts Center or something. And it was tragically ungodly. Uh, homosexuality. And I mean, it was just. Aww. Now the kids were sweet. And, you know, none of them could. Well, one of them could sing. And they gave it their best. And it was, you know, it, it was a good show. But you're talking about things that will defile you. And it just sneaks up on you in this culture. In that culture, it was probably easy to avoid being defiled or easier than it is today. You can be defiled today by driving through a big city and looking at the billboards. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it's crazy. So, you know, what internet sites do you view? What groups do you hang out with? Uh, what do you tend to think or hope? I mean, all of this stuff spiritually affects you. So when we read these things in, in uh, Numbers and Leviticus and, and Deuteronomy and all these things, we think, oh my gosh, that's not true. Apply them to yourself. Of course, you don't have to deal with dead bodies and people dying of the plague and all that stuff. You don't have to deal with making an actual animal sacrifice and blood squirting all over the place. And, you know, we, we have a different set of things to deal with. But why do we not apply these same truths to the things we deal? Why do we look at it and say, well, I, I, don't, I don't sacrifice bulls anymore. Duh, you think God didn't know that? It's like, this just took him as a shock that 3,500 years later, people weren't going to be sacrificing bulls at the altar anymore. Of course he knows. And these things he tells us are, um, are the same, are, are, oh my gosh are just as important now as they were then. So a close reading of, I think this says chapter six and chapter seven. Oh no, I'm stuck, sorry. <laughs> it's not mine, mine doesn't work. So I'm using a guest iPad and I don't know how to work it. Okay, so a close reading of chapter six and seven. Um, starts to talk about the, the food for the priests and the offerings and the sacrifices and all that stuff. And it goes through this big, long day. I mean, two chapters of this about, okay, this is the offering. And it's interesting, by the way, and I should have written this maybe next week. Um, you give offerings, right? Offerings are free will. They're not mandatory. There's no, you know, you don't have to do it. But when you give an offering, you give it uh, with the todah offering, the, the uh, oh, sorry, the uh, thank offering. Right. So the first thing you do is you approach God. When you approach God with an offering, you approach him with a thank offering, a tada offering. 
that you're thankful for all the things he's done. And then a grain offering. And then, a, you know, so there's a series of things you do and you work your way up to the, oh, and by the way, I need you to do this for me, you know, but there's a series of things you do. And these different offerings, uh, some of them are burned completely. They just go up and smoke and that's, that's unto the Lord. Some of them um, are not completely burned. Some of them are just cooked and part of it becomes food for the uh, priest, you know, and you can go through all of this stuff and read all, you know, and you think, oh my gosh, this is so boring. Okay. So it's so boring. So on this offering, the priest gets to put like, um, you know, the right thigh of the cow over here and they cook it up and it becomes dinner, but it's more than you can eat in a day. But on that particular offering, because of what it is, the priest is allowed to eat of it that day and the next day and into the third day or at the third day. If there's any left, it needs to be burned and taken outside the camp. Okay, so if you've got this meal and you're saving it for a couple of days, how does that work? They didn't have Tupperware. What do you do with it? You have half of a, half of a thigh of a cow that you can't eat it all tonight, but you sure would like it tomorrow with one of those grain offerings. What do you do with it? Make jerky. Okay, that's not what they did. They put it in a vessel, right? They put they, they didn't have Tupperware, but they put it in something. There has to be something that you put it into to hold it because you're not going to eat it again until the next day and you can't just leave it laying around. So you put it, I mean, that makes sense, right? So it goes through chapter and verse of how you do this. And interestingly, it starts talking in the middle of this about earthen vessels. Well, what do we know? You know, we just read it, right? Earthen vessels. What? Well, you should know that there are no earthen vessels in the tabernacle. All the vessels are brass, silver, and gold. And you've read that back in Exodus, but it's like in one and out the other. It doesn't matter what the vessels are made of. None of that stuff matters to us, really. I mean, we try to pay attention and, oh, that's cool. So why is it talking about earthen vessels? Because there aren't any earthen vessels. And so not only is it talking about earthen vessels, it says if you put this offering in an earthen vessel, which is common, you can't put it in an earthen vessel if you want, but there are none in the tabernacle. But you put it in this common earthen vessel, what happens to it? And we know enough to know when you put something in a clay pot that's not glazed, it absorbs the stuff you put in it, right? It will take on the flavor and the smell of what you put in it. Not a silver one, not a brass one, not a gold one but an earthen vessel will, and it absorbs the stuff. Well, you have just put in it, because you're in the temple and you're the priest, you have just put in it an offering that's holy. Well, this vessel was common. So when it absorbs it, it becomes holy. Well, that's kind of cool. If you absorb the holy things from the temple, you become holy. Well, 
that's cool. And then it goes on to say after three days, because now you have to burn anything that's left over. You burn it, take it outside the camp, put it in a clean spot. Now you've got this earthen vessel that's holy. What are you going to do with it? You can't use it for common purposes anymore. There's no food to put in it because the next offering hasn't happened yet. What do you do with it? You destroy it. You have to take it outside the camp in the same place, in the clean space, and you destroy it. And it's like, we read that and go, oh my gosh, it's so boring. Wait a minute. All through scripture, we are described as earthen vessels. We know that there are no earthen vessels in the tabernacle. Why is he talking about an earthen vessel in the tabernacle? He's got to be talking about us. So you're in the tabernacle. You become holy because you've taken on, you've ingested, you've absorbed God from the tabernacle. Now you're holy. Now what? You have to stay holy. You can't go back to being common. Otherwise, you have to be destroyed. Well, that's interesting. So if you absorb the truth and the word and you do these things and you become holy, you can't just go back. You can't say, oh, I don't want to do that anymore. It's like King Balak. Do you really want to know this? Do you really want to know what God says? Is this such a good idea? You're going to hire me to find out what God says? Because I think we both know what he's going to say. And once you hear it, you can't unhear it. It's the same with us. So you've got this whole big long thing in scripture about earthen vessels and tabernacles that don't exist. Putting stuff in it, it absorbs, it becomes holy. And then you go back to this, um, the first thing he said is if you're, if you're common, or even if you're holy, and you just touch something that's unholy, you become defiled. But if it's holy, and if it just touches the earthenware vessel, it doesn't make the earthenware vessel holy. Not until it's inside, and the earthenware vessel absorbs, and smells like, and becomes like the thing that was holy. So, there's a, uh, see if I can find it. There is a, uh, in the Midrash, the, the Tanakh is the Old Testament. The Talmud and the Midrash are uh, commentaries, basically. So it's not, uh, it's not actual scripture, but it's, sometimes they're quite interesting commentaries. And the commentary goes like this, if I can find it. Man. Okay. A young man who came every Sabbath and sat under a wonderful learned rabbi. He learned the hard truths and seemed interested. But he also had friends who did not believe the Tanakh. And he visited their church, I added on Sundays, every week and listened intently. One day the rabbi asked him, what he thought about all this. And the young man said he was not easily swayed one way or the other, and he would continue to consider both points of view until he could make a decision. And the rabbi said, 
Young man, you've already made a decision. You've only come in contact with the truth. You have not absorbed it, but you have come in contact with the common and the profane, and you are now common and profane, and you can never be holy. And it's just an interesting commentary that the, the rabbis would make on this idea of becoming holy. You have to absorb it. But in order to become profane, all you have to do is touch it. It's way easier to be profane. It's way easier to be common. It's much more difficult to be holy. <clears throat> So the, the clock on this is like, they don't even make numbers that small. Thank you. Okay, so let me add another layer to this. So Luke 22, um, nope, Luke 24 through 27, I think. 22 to 24 through 27, what do you have? Okay, that might be right. <laughs> Somebody should check on this. It's been a tough day. A dispute also rose among them, to which of them was considered to be the greatest. And Yeshua said unto them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those that exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest, and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater than the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? but I am among you as one who serves. So we're familiar with that sort of thing, right? We don't want to be what they call a benefactor, the guy that, uh, you know, is in charge of all this stuff. We want to be the guy that serves. And so I, I was looking at the church hierarchy and every church I've ever been in, runs kind of the same way. I mean, there's variations on it, but you've got the pastor who's typically some seminary trained doctor who teaches the stuff he was trained to teach. And he's either employed by or elected by or hired by a group of, of big wigs at the church who are the, you know, the important people at church. Typically they run businesses and they make money and they've proven themselves to be useful members of the community. They've not proven themselves necessarily to be solid Christians, but they're helpful and useful and um, all that stuff. So you look at the whole hierarchy of the church and it's typically exactly the opposite of what we just read. When Yeshua walked through town and he picked up his disciples, he didn't go to the local university. He didn't go to the big think tanks. He went and picked up the fishermen and just regular people. Those are the people who followed him. Those are the people he chose. He didn't choose the big high and mighties. So I think about um, the church today. And well, I, I was thinking about uh, Calvary up Valley. When Tommy first got here, he uh, he was the pastor of a little bit church with 49 people, including all the kids and dogs. So there wasn't a ton of money there. And he worked for a living. He worked for Beaver Creek, driving the limos and ski instructor. And, you know, I mean, he had to, he had to work for a living. And then 
stuff happens, you know, and you, you start getting more people and you start getting more responsibilities and you start getting more money and you can, you can drop the limousine service and then you get more people and more money and you can drop the ski instructors and, you know, then there's people vying for your time. So you need to make it a full-time thing. And then you need to hire people to help you with the stuff because you don't have time to do all the stuff. And pretty soon you've got that. You've got benefactors. You've got the people who are above and the people below. And the people above say they're serving the people below. And yet it's, it's, the, it's the other way, right? They're not, they're not serving anybody. They're being served. And, and, and it, you just, you watch it happen. Or you see these big churches. We used to, when we were in Santa Barbara, we used to deal with, we did these high school camps. And I would deal with 60 different churches. I would deal with hundreds of different churches, but I only get 60 to come with me. And I would deal with Episcopal churches and, you know, all the different churches in town and churches in five different states. And, and it was interesting watching how they worked because some of these big denominations, the youth pastor was all over it. He wanted his kids to be involved with our kids. He wanted his kids to come to our camp and see our pastors and see what, you know, what that's all about. And he would you know, offer it to the kids and a lot of them would sign up and then the, the pastor or the reverend, whoever it was, would get wind of it and it would go up the chain to the ecclesial whatever, you know, and it would move from LA to Denver to Washington and somebody would pass judgment from some place that's never even been here and met these kids, this pastor never been to this church and he would say, nope, they can't go. It's a Calvary, don't you know? Well, how does that happen? That was never the intent. Shaul was a tent maker. He went and made tents. He made money on the road. He had to. He wasn't taking money from people. How did we get from there to here? And that goes back to my original question of not holy, but common. Most people don't want to be holy because it involves too much responsibility. There are too many things they would have to do. No, there are too many things they could not do anymore. So they're better off being common. So what does that mean? Well, you want to hire a pastor who's not going to challenge you, right? Who's only going to teach flannel graph stuff. Who's not going to make you do all of the tough stuff that the Lord might have you to do to become holy. You're perfectly fine being common. I don't get it, but I see it. I know exactly how it works. And I don't know why. I, I, I don't know. I don't know why people aren't, why there aren't more people up in arms about it. Why there aren't more people who desire to be holy who desire to follow after the things of the Lord, who desire to be set apart from the world. And I can't help but think, you know, I don't want to think it's our fault. <laughs> it's easier for me to think it's their fault, you know, that they're not leading us. But it doesn't matter. You stand before the Lord on your own. You don't get to stand there with the pastor and say, well, he said that. 
You didn't read for yourself. You didn't know what the truth was. You didn't know there was more to that. You didn't know you just can't go around touching profane stuff and expect to be holy. You have to absorb it. It has to fill you. And once it does, you can't ever go back. You can't, you can't become holy on Tuesday and common on Friday. That's not the way I set it up. So we've read this before, and I talk about it all the time. Husha, chapter 6, starting in verse 1, I think. Come and let us return unto Yahweh, for he hath torn and he will heal. He hath smitten and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. And in the third day, he will raise us up and we shall live in his sight. And then we shall know if we, if we follow on to know, to know Yahweh. His going forth is prepared as the morning and he shall come to us as the rain, as the latter rain and the former rain unto earth. He's, he's, he's coming, right, on the third day, at the end of the second day. And you read the book of Husha, and you, you, know, you know the book of Husha, right? Go marry a prostitute, have these children. These children are named, not my people, scattered and some other bad thing. Uh, but then he says, in the place I said they were not my people, I will make them my people. Well, that happens right there it happens at the end of the second day on the beginning of the third day in the book of Hushi. he will take all of these people who were his people but maybe now they're common or maybe even profane and there's something that's going to happen that's going to cause those people and i mean this is what i believe i hope it's true there's something that's going to happen that's going to cause those people to all of a sudden desire to be holy to absorb the truth, to ingest the word. And at that day, then he's going to say those people who are not my people, they are my people. And I'm hopeful that that's most of the people who call themselves Christians. Most of the people who sit in the pews every day and are just perfectly happy being common. I'm hopeful that that's most of the people who are a Jewish, call themselves Jewish today, and they keep to all the feasts and they do all the stuff, but they don't know why. They don't even care why. It's just, it's a cultural thing. I'm thinking, I'm hoping, I'm praying, and I think that's what we've, we've read, that this day will come, the end of the second day of Husha, as it turns onto the third day, that these things will happen. Something Something huge is going to happen to, as Malachi says, change the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. But if that doesn't happen, he's going to come and smite the place with a curse. Well, we don't want that to happen. So I'm hopeful and I'm waiting that that's going to happen. And when I look at what scripture says and what it says to me, it gives me hope because if I just looked at the world today, at the church today, at the people who think they're Christians today, I wouldn't have any hope because most of those people have no idea what the Bible says. They have no idea what it's like to be. They don't even want to be holy. They don't know that they can be holy. Nobody's ever challenged them with that. They've read the verses in the New Testament, you know, be holy as I am holy and all that. They don't know what that means. Because they've never read this. They've never read these things in the Old Testament about 
what is holy and what is profane and how you become profane, how you become holy. Because they read it and it's just a bunch of gobbledygook about offerings that we don't do. Who cares if it's in an earthen vessel or a brass vessel? Or It's huge. It's giant. He wouldn't say earthenware if he wasn't talking about you. So it's important. So anyway, that's, it was just funny when you waltzed in this morning and started talking about, it's like, well, that's what we're going to talk about. And then you started talking about the same thing and seeing all this stuff. It's like, well, I'm going home. Wait, I am home. You're going home. But that's the way it works. You know, the, the, the more familiar you become with the truth of the word, the easier it is to be holy. And it doesn't mean, you know, it doesn't mean holier than thou. It doesn't mean all that stuff that the Christians today say and the church today says. And, you know, we're supposed to be inclusive and welcoming and everything's cool and you've got to respect all that. No. You can't respect the profane. You can't invite the profane into your house, into your church. You can't. You have to be holy. And that means standing up for stuff. It means understanding what the word is. So, I don't know. Anyway, there you go. How do we do? Do I still have time? Two minutes. Oh. One minute. Okay. <laughs> you have a couple left. I got a whole bunch of verses. You know, four or five weeks ago, I decided I was going to go through and and pick out some of the discussion verses that we've been talking about over the last, since, I don't know, three months or something. Um, and they're here. <laughs> I, I think it would be good at some point to go through some of those and just, you know, think, think it through. But in terms of this, you know, those, those, the, the purpose of those discussion verses, I guess, I didn't have the, this, this verbiage then, but I guess the purpose of this, these discussion verses would be to put you in a place where you could become holy, you know, instead of just common, because common is not good enough. Common is the lamp that goes out and our lamp has not gone out. So we're good to go. That's right. I'm going to get this big old feast and wedding supper and all that stuff. So anyway, there you go. Thanks. See you next week. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Thank you.